0: Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, June 26th, 2019. I am your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Moulton's plan to sneak into the debates, kind of, President Trump weighs in on whether he's going to watch, a look at the candidates' polling numbers for each night, one reporter's read on who has to do what in the debates, and a quick look at the 51-for-51 effort to make D.C. a state. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, a quick note about Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Now, he announced his candidacy relatively late on April 22nd, and is one of several candidates who have not met either of the DNC's thresholds to get into this first set of debates. If he picks up some polling numbers or gets a bunch of donors, or ideally both, he will have a shot at the July debates, but obviously he is not on the stage Wednesday or Thursday this week. But Moulton has reportedly purchased TV ads in some key markets during the debates. Reading from a Wall Street Journal article by Ken Thomas, quote, The congressman plans to air a 30-second ad introducing himself to voters in the four early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Mr. Moulton's 30-second ad will play during or right before the debates in Iowa and New Hampshire on Wednesday, and Nevada and South Carolina on Thursday. The campaign is releasing a longer, 60-second version of the ad on digital platforms. End quote. Well played, Representative Moulton. Now, as you'll recall from last week, his fellow candidate, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, is going one step further by holding actual televised town halls in some of those same states right before the debates air. I'll keep you posted if anybody else who didn't make it into the debates finds another clever way to make it near the debates. And here's a tiny bit of presidential news. In a tweet, Wall Street Journal reporter Rebecca Ballhouse reported on President Trump's plan for the debates. Reading from her tweet here, quote, Trump on the first Democratic debate. It seems very boring, but I'm going to watch it because I have to. He will be on Air Force One flying to Osaka for the G20 when the debate airs, end quote. Okay, so yeah, Air Force One does get live TV. Now, other commentators on Twitter noted that the debates air opposite Sean Hannity's show on Fox News, which may increase the president's odds of changing the channel. At 5.38, the staffers held a chat discussion discussing what they'll be looking for in the debates this week. Within that discussion, they posted a chart that's pretty interesting. To make it, they took all the polls that the DNC considered in its qualifications for this set of debates, and then figured out the polling average for each candidate. Now, by polling average, I mean you take all the polls you've got, you figure out what a given candidate's support was in each poll, and then you average all of those numbers together. So for what it's worth, at this stage, prior to the first debates, we have to take all the polling with many, many grains of salt. A lot of this early preference stuff, where pollsters ask somebody over the phone in, say, March of 2019, who they might vote for in a primary that won't happen until March of 2020, well, you're going to get a result that favors anybody who the voter has actually heard of. So with these numbers, we are mainly talking about name recognition. But still, what 538 did with this data is genuinely useful. On Wednesday, the average polling average of a given candidate is 2.1%. What I mean is, if you take all 10 of the candidates' polling averages and then make an average of those, now you've got an average of averages. And yes, I'm sorry for saying those sentences just now, but we're done with that part, now we can move on. On Wednesday, that overall average number is 2.1%. But on Thursday, it's 6.4%. There is also a total score where they just added up all the polling averages. On Wednesday, that number is 21.4%, then on Thursday, it's way up at 64%, meaning the candidates on Thursday have a lot more total name recognition and polled much better in the days leading up to the cutoff for the debates. By the way, the 21.4 and 64 don't add up to 100 because some people declined to answer or had a different preference or whatever. The other thing that's super obvious from looking at this graph is that there are really just two tiers of candidates in these debates, at least from an early polling perspective. Those are the folks who got 2% or less, and everybody else. On Wednesday night, we're going to see seven candidates who fall into that 2% or less category. The only ones who poll better are Booker, O'Rourke, and Warren. To me, this is a great opportunity, because we finally get to see how regular viewers react to candidates like, for instance, Delaney, who polls at just 0.2% on average. It is unlikely that most voters are even aware of who Delaney is, or that he is running for president. That should change tonight, and I'm curious how it will change the polling. We're probably going to have to wait a few weeks to see the real effect in the polls, but something should move. The same is true on Thursday for both Swalwell and Williamson, both of whom poll the same 0.2% figure. Thursday also has more of what 538 calls big hitters, by which they mean Biden, with his crushing 29.9% polling average, Sanders at 18.3, Harris at 7.6, and Buttigieg at 5.8. But there will still be six candidates in that 2% and under club, and I am keen to see how the debates might change their numbers too. So check the link in the show notes for that 538 chat and their chart. Okay, it's time to commit. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Next up, this is the second day in a row that I am citing an article by Gabriel DeBadonetti in New York Magazine. He is one of my go-to writers for primary coverage in general, and he has done it again with an article titled, quote, Who Needs to Do What in the First Democratic Debate of 2020? End quote. Bonus points for clarity in titling. So, the article opens this way. Quote, None of the 20 Democratic presidential candidates who'll debate in Miami over two nights this week, half of them on Wednesday, the other half on Thursday, have ever done anything like this before. Every member of the field, seven senators, one current governor, one ex-governor, five current or former House members, two mayors, one ex-cabinet member, one former vice president, one entrepreneur, and one new-age author, takes the stage with different imperatives and incentives. For many of the long shots, this could be their best chance to break through. Meanwhile, most of the favorites could easily play it safe, or they could light it up and go on the attack. Here, based on conversations with leading campaign strategists, debate veterans, and candidates from across the party, is what each candidate will probably be looking to do, and how he or she might do it end quote. So, this article is your homework if you have 10 minutes before the debate tonight or tomorrow. It's broken up into Wednesday and Thursday. There's a link in the show notes. But, of course, I'm going to give you some highlights for tonight's debate right now. In the article, each candidate is treated with the same three-question format. Those questions are what does he or she need to do, whom might he or she attack, and who might attack him or her. Okay, let me read you the section on Senator Amy Klobuchar. She is a great example of someone who is polling in that lower tier, but has a chance to go further in this race if she can break through the noise. Quote, What does she need to do? A huge part of Klobuchar's pitch is that she can beat Trump, and that voters simply need to look at her electoral record in Minnesota to see the evidence. This will likely be at the center of her debate messaging, too, but she is also eager to break from the middle of the pack. So she may engage Warren, Wednesday's biggest name, in policy discussions directly, to elevate herself in voters' eyes. Whom might she attack? On the campaign trail, Klobuchar often points out how she can talk about certain issues, like agricultural ones in Iowa, in a way none of her rivals can. But she rarely goes after them directly and rarely by name. If that's going to change on the debate stage, she would likely go after Sanders and anyone who she perceives might agree with his proposed style of governance. Klobuchar is known in the Senate as someone eager to cross party lines and make deals, so she may pounce on anyone who suggests that bipartisanship isn't possible. Who might attack her? Klobuchar isn't likely to come under direct attack. End quote. I think that analysis is spot-on for several reasons. For Klobuchar specifically, she has real policy differences with the best polling candidate on her night, Elizabeth Warren. But she has rarely had much of a platform to highlight those differences or to introduce herself in opposition to these other candidates. For instance, she is vastly more moderate on things like how to pay for college than candidates like Warren or Sanders. This is an opportunity for her to explain that position and give some context for viewers on why a relatively moderate candidate might be just what the party needs right now. And I also want to read you the section on Warren, who is the polling leader and probably the biggest target on stage tonight. If you're a regular listener of this show, you have heard about Warren quite a bit. She's got tons of policies and has steadily moved up in polls ever since she announced way back in February. Warren is now a very serious contender for this nomination. In some ways, I see her big challenge as essentially maintaining that momentum. Okay, reading from the piece, quote, What does she need to do? Warren is on the rise in polling, and neither of her most obvious rivals, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, will be on stage with her. That should make it easy for Warren to do what she's already been doing, talk with specificity about the progressive policy plans she's been unveiling to great fanfare without needing to criticize any other candidate too sharply. This tactic has won her praise as a serious contender, and she'll be eager to amplify that in front of her biggest national audience yet. Whom might she attack? Warren has almost no incentive to go after anyone sharing the stage with her, especially considering that her two main competitors will almost certainly be attacking each other the next night. Who might attack her? Some of the longer shot candidates like John Delaney or Julian Castro may see attacking Warren as their best bet at making headlines. End quote. So there you have it. It is likely that we'll see Warren talking about her many plans, which really have been a strength in two ways. First, she's providing, you know, actual policy, which some candidates have been light on. And second, she is creating an identity that is simple and obvious for voters to understand. Warren is the I have a plan for that candidate. Warren is the nevertheless she persisted candidate. She has these clear slogans backed up by actions that have not yet been defined by some of the other candidates. And let me be clear, it is not because the other candidates have not done stuff. In many cases, it is because they have not managed to get their message into the media as effectively as these top polling candidates. Now that everybody has a chance at some real national media attention, let's see how those messages resonate with voters. And last up today, I want to highlight an issue that may come up in the debates this week, given that roughly 11 of the presidential candidates have signed on to support it and that is the 51 for 51 campaign. What that is, is a specific method of granting statehood to the District of Columbia, and in the future, other states as well. In a nutshell, what they're asking for is a simple majority vote in the Senate to add new states, meaning if you have 51 yes votes, then you can add a new state, and that would be a special exemption to existing filibuster rules. Now, the Constitution doesn't actually specify how states get added to the Union. Instead, it grants that power to Congress. Now, the Constitution does have rules about splitting up existing states and stuff like that, but adding new states from territories controlled by the U.S. is pretty simple. Historically, the process has been for the U.S. to ask that territory to hold a referendum to make sure its people actually want to join. Then, assuming that majority says yes, they have to form a state government, petition to become a state, and then the House and Senate have to pass resolutions by simple majority votes. Then the president signs the resolution, and that's that new state. But it has been quite a while since we've added any new states. One of the complicating factors in the D.C. statehood discussion has been the filibuster, which requires a 60-vote majority in the Senate to break. So the 51 for 51 folks are asking for one specific thing, to eliminate the filibuster for Senate votes on adding new states. That is literally it. They are just asking for a carve-out to the existing filibuster rules. Now, the net effect of adding D.C. as a state would be quite likely adding two more Democratic senators to the Senate, which, as you can imagine, would shake things up quite a bit and has caused a lot of partisan disagreement about this issue. So I've got some audio here from several Democratic candidates who will debate tonight who are on the record supporting this particular change. So let's listen to how they respond to activists from the 51 for 51 campaign. First up, Delaney. I kind of felt like I was representing D.C. a little bit when Mm -hmm. I was in the Congress, because I was like, I know all these great folks in D.C. Maryland's sixteen, And they they don't have kind of a voice, so I would always try to include them in my, like, town halls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know... I actually think, you know, they should, of course they should. Awesome. Could we reaffirm your support in that statement with, again, passing it through with a simple majority through the Senate, 51 votes? Yeah, I mean, I, I want D.C. to be a state, so I will do anything I can to make this. Next up, Ryan. So the, I'm here with Tim Ryan, Hi. the reason we're out here is we're trying to um, get presidential candidates not just to support DC statehood, which we know people usually do, um, but to actually support the path to statehood, which is removing, um, making it such that there's 51 votes in the Senate just for statehood votes. Do you support that? Sure. Yeah? yeah. You do? Yeah, all right. 51 votes in the Senate. Why not? Yeah. All right. Great. We well, that's all we need. We'll get the Senate back and we'll add about 10 states. Yeah. That we'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so you much. Well, you know, we're yeah. good. And finally, Warren. Andre Hi, Andre. I'm a student from the District of Columbia. Woo! Yeah, nice Woo! to meet you. So, so what are you doing in honor of this? Summer? We're doing. I we want to talk to all of the presidential candidates and a lot of people across the nation. Here I am. Um, we wanted to talk to you guys. As you see my shirt, it says I 51 for 50. Uh-huh. Um, we know that you support DC statehood. Yeah. We know that you Have support DC coming for uh, becoming a state. We wanted to know: Do you support DC becoming a state through a non-filibuster protected 51 vote? Sure. You do. Done. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Now, Bill de Blasio, who will also appear at tonight's debates, does support this effort as well, although the audio of his endorsement is pretty rough, it's really hard to hear, so I did not include it here. So, let's see if this issue comes up in the debates tonight or tomorrow, either in the context of D.C. or the other often-discussed 51st or 52nd state, Puerto Rico. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. After recording this, I will retire to my command center, a.k.a. the living room, to prepare for tonight's debate. On the West Coast, it is conveniently airing from 6pm to 8pm, allowing me to get to bed at a reasonable hour. Thanks, DNC, or NBC, or whoever made that call. I'll be around on Twitter during the debates, and again, the first link in the show notes will get you those debate bingo cards if you don't have them yet. If nothing else, they serve as a handy guide to which candidate is which and where they are standing. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.